Why are we believers? Why are we Christians? Uh, Why do we follow Jesus? Uh, Why are we here this morning? Uh, This is the first time that we've been able to meet like this for about 16 weeks, and it's wonderful that we're here. Uh, But why have we come back? What's our motivation? Today we're looking at Simon Magus, or Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, He's an example of someone who embraced Christianity for all the wrong reasons. Now, I'm sure we haven't embraced Christianity for all the wrong reasons, and I'd be very surprised if there's anyone in this church who's got the same kind of motivation as Simon Magus had. Uh, Nevertheless, as we return to gathering as Christ's church, it's not a bad thing to examine our motives for following Christ in the first place. We're all human. We're all deeply flawed. We have mixed motives for just about everything we do. Some good, some bad, some indifferent. Uh, If I were to take Tissa out for a nice meal on her birthday, of course, my main motivation would be to show her that she's valued and uh, that she's special and to give her a wonderful evening on her birthday. But of course, I would also have something to gain from it. I enjoy spending time with Tissa. I enjoy going out for uh, a meal. Uh, My motive wouldn't be 100% altruistic. Uh, You can deny it if you want, but I think we all have mixed motives for everything that we do, including following Jesus. That doesn't mean that we're false Christians or phony believers like Simon Magus. It just means that we're human. And we'll come back to our motivation for following Christ towards the end. So what about Simon the sorcerer? Well, he was the first false Christian. And you may even be wondering whether there is such a thing as a false Christian. But uh, Jesus taught about this quite a lot. Uh, He told the parable of the wheat and the weeds, uh, the uh, growing up together, the true and the false believers together in the church. Uh, He told the uh, parable of the the net. The kingdom of God is like a, a large net that catches all kinds of fish. The kingdom of God attracts all kinds of people. Some are genuine believers, others are not. Jesus warned about this repeatedly. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. False believers exist. Jesus warned about them. So Simon, he practiced sorcery, and he boasted that he was someone great. And I don't know about you, but when I first read this, kind of skipped over it, and I imagined that uh, Simon was a kind of local conjurer who had tricked a few gullible peasants. Uh, but it was actually far more serious than that. Verse 10 says this. It says, all the people, both high and low. In other words, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, the powerless and the influential, all the people gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Simon Magus was a big deal in Samaria. He was worshipped as a god. Writing in the second century, St. Augustine, uh, sorry, uh, Justin Martyr rather, uh, tells us that he was worshipped by almost all the Samaritans. He was even worshipped by some in Rome who had erected a statue in his honour. So this guy had a statue in Rome. So Simon was effectively a satanic, false miracle worker who was viewed as a deity by the majority of people in Samaria. And then Philip 
arrives in Samaria. Uh, he preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And his message is well received. A lot of people believe and get baptized. There's a huge shift away from Simon towards Jesus. Simon is effectively knocked off his perch. And Simon takes notice. How could he not? This man who had amazed so many people for so long is now amazed himself. And he knew the difference between his deception and the reality of the gospel. And we're told that Simon believed and was baptized. And again, you might say, well, surely that makes him a true believer. After all, in Mark 16, verse 16, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But there's belief and there's belief. In James 2, verse 19, it says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The devil believes in God, believes in God's existence, but he doesn't worship him. You know, there are three marks of being a Christian, and I I usually mention this during a baptism service, Uh, but the three marks of being a Christian. Christians believe, that is to say, they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. They're baptized, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, but not necessarily in that order. Simon Magus was baptized, but he didn't truly believe And so he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. He believed in the power and the efficacy of the Holy Spirit. That was evident. That's what amazed him. But he didn't put his faith and his trust in Jesus. And his motivation becomes evident. He saw faith as a means to an end. He thought that if he said he believed and got baptized, then he'd be in. And he'd have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want Christ. He wants the power that he sees in Philip because Philip is performing signs and miracles, presumably healings and exorcisms and things of that nature. But that's not Philip's power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Simon Magus wants to make that his power. He wants to own it. He wants to possess it so that he can make himself great once again. Not a good motivation for wanting to follow Jesus. We'll come back to Simon in a moment, but there's a subplot in this passage that's actually really important. We see it in verses 14 to 17. So let's just read those verses now. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So it's going off in Samaria. The church in Jerusalem get to hear about this. They send Peter and John to check it out, to see what's happening. And when Peter and John uh, arrive, they lay their hands on the Samaritan converts who are only then filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Why are the Samaritan believers only filled with the Holy Spirit when Peter and John lay their hands on them? I mean, we believe, don't we, that when a person genuinely turns to Christ, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It happens instantly. You know, often when a person turns to Christ, they don't necessarily feel anything different, but they can be sure that they've been filled with the Holy Spirit because it's a promise. 
All Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go through some kind of probationary period. So why was there a delay in the Samaritan believers receiving the Holy Spirit? Well, last week we saw that the church made a rapid transition from Jewish movement to world mission. And this was a really volatile time for the church. The Jewish believers, and all the first believers were Jewish, they really struggled with the idea of Gentiles, non-Jews, becoming Christians. This was really difficult for them. They didn't think it could happen. They thought that they actually had to become Jewish before they could become Christian. So this stage in the church's history, this very early stage, there could have easily been a split. And you would have ended up with the Jewish Christian churches and the Gentile Christian churches, which of course would have been catastrophic. And so this transition from Jewish movement to world mission happens in three phases. The first is the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the believers in Jerusalem. But as we've seen at that stage, all the believers were Jewish. Then there's this mass conversion of the Samaritans that we're reading about today. Now, in the Old Testament, when the northern kingdom with its capital, Samaria, was invaded and attacked by the Assyrians, uh, the, the Jewish people were carried off into captivity. Uh, but some remained behind. Some may have been reintroduced. And the Assyrians had a policy of, of bringing in other people groups to occupy the lands that they'd conquered. And the Jews that remained behind, they intermarried with some of these other people groups. So what you ended up with in Samaria was effectively a group of people who were kind of half Jewish and half Gentile. And this is why the uh, Jews had such a problem with the Samaritans. They saw them as being unclean. They thought that they had polluted themselves by intermarrying with the Gentiles. So the Samaritans are kind of like a bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, the Jewish church would have really struggled with the idea of Samaritans uh, being included in the church. So I believe that God delayed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John were there to see it. This, This event, the Samaritans being brought into God's family, was witnessed by the two most prominent apostles. And this is significant. That they saw the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Samaritans. And presumably, um, the same kind of things that happened on the day of Pentecost happened on this occasion because they could visibly see that the Samaritans had been filled with the Holy Spirit. So no one could argue with that. The Samaritans believed, they'd been baptized, and they'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John were there to see it. And shortly after that, you have the third phase, which is the inclusion of the Gentiles. You remember that Peter was sent to the home of a Roman centurion called Cornelius. And when Peter was preaching to the whole of Cornelius' household, this is what happened. He said, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So the Holy Spirit was poured out firstly on Jewish believers, and then on Samaritan believers, and then on Gentile believers. There's a very obvious progression. 
And each time, it was witnessed by the apostles, and it was attested by visible manifestations of the Spirit's power. The clear message is that salvation through Jesus Christ is available to everyone. And everyone who receives Christ receives the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit occurs the instant we turn to Christ. In the case of the Samaritans, as we've seen, there was a delay, but that was for a very specific reason, to prevent uh, a schism within the church. So Simon sees these believers being filled with the Holy Spirit in a very obvious way at the laying on of the apostles' hands. And he wants to be able to do that. He wants to be able to lay his hands on people and for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not to further God's kingdom, but to further his own sordid aims. He wants to be revered. He wants to be respected. He wants to be worshipped. And unbelievably, he actually tries to buy this power from the apostles, which shows the real state of his heart. He ought to know that nothing God has is for sale. Everything he offers is free. But it's given to the humble, the broken, the contrite of heart, the truly repentant, and those who genuinely give their lives to Jesus. And Peter, true to form, gives a very direct answer. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gifts of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. They're pretty strong words. May your money perish with you. As one commentator said, Peter effectively tells Simon to go to hell. But Peter also calls him to repentance. Even now he can turn back to God. He doesn't have to be lost. Because God is a God of second chances, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and so on. It's never too late. Never too late to give our lives to Jesus. But Simon's response is very telling. Peter tells Simon to pray, and Simon effectively throws it back at Peter and says, No, you pray for me. Look at verse 24. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. He's just worried that something bad is going to happen to him. He doesn't want to perish. As John Stock put it, what really concerned him was not that he might receive God's pardon, but only that he might escape God's judgment. Simon was a false believer. He appeared to be following Jesus. Uh, Philip presumably believed that he was uh, following Jesus, otherwise he wouldn't have baptized him. It, it even says that he followed Philip around everywhere. Not that Philip was Jesus, but it shows that he was keen, but for all the wrong reasons. For Simon, being a Christian was kind of like a formula that he thought would increase his own power. He has no thought of glorifying God. He doesn't want, uh, he, he wants the gifts but not the giver. False believers have existed throughout the church's history. In the Victorian era, going to church was worn like a badge of respectability. Now, of course, there were plenty of genuine Christians at that time, but I think the, uh, the reason that such a large percentage of the, the population went to church at that time was that it was socially acceptable. It was a done thing. In all ages... There have been pious hypocrites who have used their faith as a, as a excuse to look down their noses at other people. 
uh, in the US and to a lesser extent here in Australia, religion is politicized. Just think of Trump clearing away all those protesters with riot police and tear gas just so he could stand in front of a church building holding a Bible, even had the rector of that church thrown out his own church. Nothing more than a cheap publicity stunt. Another thing people do, and this relates to our need for salvation, is, is to use Christianity almost like an insurance policy. In other words, a person recognizes that they're sinful, they recognize that they're guilty, and that there are or, or there might be eternal consequences. And so they get baptized, or they go to church frequently or infrequently, or they say the sinner's prayer, you know, they verbally uh, accept Jesus into their lives, but over the course of their life, you see there's, there's, no, there's no fruit from that. There's no change. There's no transformation. There's obviously been no real commitment. Almost as if there's a formula that will get God on our side and secure our place in heaven. But that's not turning to Christ. That's trying to manipulate or control God. So people often latch onto Christianity for all the wrong reasons, just like Simon Majors did. And it's not just false believers who do that. Uh, genuine, spirit-filled Christians can have mixed motives for engaging in ministry, for coming to church, for following Jesus, uh, which is why we should use this opportunity to examine our motives. Of course, every genuine believer loves Jesus and wants to see him glorified. But there are other things that creep in as well, aren't there? One of the most prevalent is the prosperity gospel, which says, if you follow Jesus, you will have a great life. You'll have health, wealth, and success. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? He was whipped, beaten with rods, and stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He experienced sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and biting cold. He labored for the gospel. He was imprisoned on a number of occasions, and he was eventually executed. But you know what? He did have a great life. He did have a great life. He served the Lord faithfully. He made a huge impact for the gospel. He enjoyed close friendships and the unity of the Holy Spirit. He knew the joy of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. His life had meaning and purpose. And now he's with Jesus forever in paradise. His life did go great. His life did go great. But that's not the kind of great life that most people are seeking when they buy in, literally buy in to the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel encourages us to use God as a means to an end, to, to get God on our side so that we can have the things that we desire. Of course, we can bring our finances before the Lord. Of course, we can pray for healing. We can pray for success in our, in our place of work. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and God does work powerfully and wonderfully in our lives. But we don't follow Christ because we want health, wealth, and success in the here and now. That's not our motivation, or it shouldn't be. Our treasure is in heaven, and our joy stretches into eternity. Isn't that enough? We follow Christ because we recognize that we are sinful human beings in need of a savior. And we love Jesus. We love Jesus. So as we come back together as a community, it's fitting to ask, 
Why are we here today? Acts chapter 8 presents us with a contrast. Simon boasted of himself. Philip preached the gospel. He elevated Jesus. What about us? Do we want to glorify ourselves or do we want to glorify Jesus? Are we here because we want God to serve us or because we want to serve God? Are we here to further our own agenda, ambition, and plans? Or are we here because we want to join in with God's sovereign plan? These are important questions. What is our motivation? What is our motivation for being here today? What is our motivation for following Christ? Let's examine ourselves. Let's examine our own hearts. And where we find any self-serving motives, let's reject those in favor of serving our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, acknowledge that we are sinful human beings. And just seeing uh, the example of Simon Major, someone who was at such an extreme end of the scale in terms of having wrong motives for following you, it just encourages us to think about our own motives. And we recognize that um, all of us have uh, wrong motives sometimes. And we pray that you help us to identify those things in our hearts that are not right. Help us to leave them behind. Help us not to, to want to glorify ourselves, but only to glorify you and see your kingdom come in our lives, in our family, in our places of work, in our school, in our community. Your kingdom come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.